Guys, I just want to say congratulations. We are going to finish Galatians this morning. All right? Everybody excited? Okay, cool. Four of us are excited. The other ones, it's your first time here. You don't know we've been traveling for this book longer than we've traveled through any book that we have gone through as a church. Um, in fact, as I was kind of reading over and studying for preparing, I was looking at chapter 6, and we started chapter 6 last week, but I thought, you know what? We're just going to go for an entire chapter. Now, if it's your first time here, you don't know this, but for everybody else, you just thought, oh no, we're not leaving till 2 p.m. Okay, but we're going to go quickly because what's, what's fascinating is when Paul wrote this, um, Paul wrote it as a letter, so people oftentimes would read it, you know, we go through the nuances of this and that, and Paul was just writing and writing and writing, and they would read it all at one time. Uh, and especially in chapter 6, Paul gets close to the end, and he gets, starts to give some really applicable advice. He gets through the first four and a half chapters or so, spends time talking about basically what is the gospel, what is the gospel, and then gives application to how then do we live in response to this? How do we live in response to the fact that we have freedom? Because see, the first four and a half chapters, Paul was addressing an issue that happened in the church of Galatia, which isn't all too different than the church of today. And what I mean by that is Paul was addressing an issue called legalism. And the idea of legalism is that I would be acceptable to God partly by what I believe and partly through how I behave. And though belief does implicate behavior, the message of Jesus was different in that Jesus said, hey, you simply are good with God based on your faith, based on your belief. Not simply in God, because that's oftentimes how we interpret that. Not simply that you believe Jesus is a God, or if you had to pick, you know, there's, there's lots of different gods. There's, you know, all kinds of, of different religions in the world. And if I had to pick one, I'd pick Jesus. And so I think out of everybody, and I'm not fully convinced, but I believe in Jesus more than I believe in anybody else. And so simply an, an affiliation with the deity provides me salvation. And Paul would say, no, it's your belief that you and I are fundamentally incompatible with God. It's the belief that because we all have sinned, because we all have fallen short of the glory of God, God in his perfection, God in his holiness is different than we are. And we are incompatible because for God to have any unholiness, any sin in his presence takes the essence away of God in his perfection, that God cannot have imperfection in his presence, which makes a problem because you and I are pretty imperfect folks. And so God saw that. He saw our imperfection. He saw our sin, and he did not hold it against us. But then it's the subsequent belief, not only in my sinfulness, but in his provision, that God didn't hold it against me, but he sent his son into the world. And into the world, what we're celebrating this Christmas season is a Savior, a God, who interestingly did not come as a God who on his mighty throne, on a, you know, some kind of gigantic white horse, you know, which when we say white horse, I would say, well, why has it got to be a white horse? But anyways, comes on this horse and, and, you know, just invades and, you know, a big laser beam comes down and something happens. No, no, no. He came. Think about this. The fullness of God, the deity of God, the holiness of God was manifest in a baby in a feeding trough. It's crazy. But that he came. He taught in a way that no one had taught before. And not always in a positive light. Because if you read the scriptures, you know this. Sometimes people would hear him teach and they would come by the hundreds, they would come by the thousands to hear him teach. And sometimes those thousands would gather and he would say something just so unpalatable 
that it would drive everybody away. And he would talk to his core people and say, are y'all leaving too? And they wouldn't say no, but they wouldn't say yes. And they'd say, well, we don't have anywhere else to go. Yes, we'll stay. He performed miracles to substantiate his claims, to substantiate his power and his authority, to heal and to help. And then he would do what no one expected to do, which was to die. And placing your faith is not simply a faith in a God. It's to believe that when Jesus died, when God died, he didn't simply die a martyr's death. He died a substitutionary death. On the cross, he took the shame, he took the guilt, he took the sin, he took the price that I should have paid. Because whenever there is a rift in their relationship, there has to be some type of payment that's made. You get in trouble with the law, you got to do the time. And so Jesus was that payment for us. And it's simply our belief in that that gives us everlasting life. It's simply our belief in that that gives us salvation. That his death and his resurrection overcame our death and our sin. And he brings us from death to life. That we now have a reconciled relationship with God. That has nothing to do with what you do. It has nothing to do with what I do. It has nothing to do with our church attendance. It has nothing to do with our level of morality. It's simply by faith. But we over and over try to complicate that. We over and over try to integrate back into this sense of behaviorism, morality. We we over and over try to integrate because most of our lives are wrapped around the relational dynamic that I am in good standing with who I'm in good standing with. I'm in good standing with my wife. I'm in good standing with my kids. I'm in good standing with my boss. I'm in good standing with my coworkers. I'm in good good standing with my teachers based on how I perform. In fact, everybody who graduated, you know what you just did? You just spent four years, or for me, six years, going through a four-year track that you basically took test after test to say, how am I doing? How am I performing? And God would say, but not with me. So at the end of the first half of chapter 5, Paul stops and he says, so what are we going to do with this freedom? That you don't have to behave anymore. What are we going to do with this freedom? That you don't have to moral anymore. What are we going to do with this freedom? That you now have a right standing with God simply by belief. You are justified. In fact, not just pronounced forgiven. You are free. Innocent. So what are you going to do with your freedom? In other words, he asked the question that many of us have asked in our skepticism, which we think we're the first ones to ask it. Well, if God forgives me, can't I just do whatever I want whenever I want with whomever I want? It's like, man, I'm glad you thought about that in 2017. Because about 2017 years ago, or actually about 1,950-ish years ago, Paul answered that question. He says, in your freedom, do not use it to gratify your sinful nature, but instead serve one another. He talks about the last half of chapter 5. Part of how we serve one another is through our personal holiness. That I cannot disconnect my level of holiness, my level of adoration for God in pursuing after him in holiness from loving other people because my personal holiness is an expression of my love for other people because when I live in sin, when I live in error, when I live in ways that are selfish, it by nature hurts people. And it's a lie to think That my personal holiness is disassociated from how I love my neighbor. Because I think I can hide and keep my stuff to myself. And again, it has nothing to do with your standing with God. But it has everything to do with the way and the manner in which we love people. So, all of that to say, 
Open your Bible to Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, and we're going to get rolling. So, Galatians 6, verse 1, Paul turns a corner in this as he's talking about a lot of the practical implications now of how does this work out relationally. So, the end of chapter 5 is morally, beginning of chapter 6 is more of a relational dynamic. This is what he says. Brothers. Now, he just said brothers because he was writing a mostly male audience, but, you know, sisters, you're invited too, okay? Brothers. If anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But keep watch yourself, lest you too be tempted. In other words, when you see someone who's struggling, I want you to realize they're struggling. I want you to help to restore them because you care for one another. You love one another. The implication of the roots of the gospel in your life is I care about you, hopefully as much as as I care about me. Or at least I'm trying to. I see that and there's a growing love for you. He says, you who are spiritual should restore him in gentleness. Keep yourself, keep watch yourself, lest you be tempted. And so bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. In other words, in the way that we fulfill God's calling on our life in many ways, the law, which would be all of the Old Testament, all of the commandments, is that we would bear one another's burdens. Now, what I love about Paul, let me pause pause and say this. This is going to be true for most of the rest of the chapter, is Paul gives really well-balanced advice. Because oftentimes when we read the scriptures, it seems like there's just this unrealistic expectation. That great, so now i got to do everything for everybody else and people can just use that and take advantage of it. Paul says, give me a second. Verse 3. He says, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Now, interesting connection between verse 3 and verse 2. Because what verse 2 just said is you should bear one another's burdens. In verse 3, and so if you think you're something and really you're really nothing, then you're fooling yourself. And here's what he's saying in this. We are all nothing. But the reason we don't help other people is because oftentimes we feel a sense of superiority to the people that we're called to help. The reason that we don't give, the reason that we don't bear is because we're more concerned with ourselves because frankly, we think that we're more important. And Paul says, and when you think that you are better, when if anyone thinks that he is something, and we're all nothing, and that's not a, that's not a deprecating you, you know, terrible people, that's just a, hey, the realization is we're all broken, we're all sinful people. And so when you think that you're something, when you think that you're too good, you deceive yourself. But on the other side of it, in verse four, That he deceives himself, but let each one test his own work. Now, verse 4 and verse 5 go together, and this context plays a huge role in this. I'm going to read them together. But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Now, this is interesting, because Paul's all of a sudden switching. It's like, Paul, I don't know if you know this, if you know about the rest of the book, but the whole book is about how we shouldn't bear our own burdens. You just said to bear one another's burdens, and then you said to boast in yourself, and you're going to find this out in a couple verses, that he's going to say, and I'm going to boast in nothing but Jesus. But here's what Paul is saying. In Jesus, I am both called to bear your burdens, and the burden he uses in verse 3 is different then the burden, or then verse 2 is different than the burden that he uses in verse 5 when he says this. And what he's saying is essentially this. The call of Christ on your life, in my life, is not simply that we should bear each other's burdens, but I actually have a responsibility in my life too. Now, that seems obvious intuitive, but here's why that matters so much. For some of us, we can be so obsessed with carrying other people's burdens That we forget that God has given us a work to do. 
that we forget that God has in fact given me something to do. And my work is different than your work and your work is different than my work and all of our works are different in and of themselves and we all have things that we need other people to help us carry but me helping you carry does not disqualify me or does not in any way, shape or form mean that I shouldn't carry my own as well. Now here's the beauty of the Christian life and frankly, here's the beauty of the Christian community. When we read this, it seems like those of you who you have a lot it's just going to be constant giving and giving and giving and giving and giving. Can you imagine a community where everyone did everything as if they were working to the Lord? Can you imagine a community of people that every single person worked exceedingly hard? I mean, the best work ethic you can imagine. And they were helping each other. And they were taking one of those burdens and said, hey, there's some things that as hard as you work are still going to be difficult for you, so I'm going to help you with those. There's some burdens, there's some life situations that though you're working, though you're straining, though you're trying, though you are being healthy as an individual, there's some things that you still need to help with, and so we want to help out in the areas that you need help in the same way that there's going to be a reciprocal, you're going to help me in some areas that I need help as well. And he says, and then we will look and we will boast not on what our, our people have or what we have in comparison to other people, but in ourselves. And what he means by that is not this selfishness, we will boast in what God is doing in and through us. Now, again, he shotguns a bunch of different advice in this whole thing. And my hope is as we go and we sift through, there are some things that perhaps as he says it, you say, you know what? I think about myself a lot, but I don't bear anybody else's burdens. Or perhaps to the other side of the room, you say, man, I carry everybody's burdens to my dysfunction. We've seen both because we're people. And there's grace in that. But hopefully there's also growth in that. He continues with my, very, my favorite verse in the Bible. And you'll see why in a second. He says, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. So, for those of you with beach houses, okay, you should share. I'm just saying, with the one who teaches you. For those of you with a, a private plane, perhaps, or a helicopter, you know, we've got some Easter plans, so we need to borrow your helicopter at some point. Um, if anybody has a 1967 to 76 Ford Bronco, um, it's like both our Bronco. We'll just keep it at your garage. When, when he says this, it's interesting because he kind of transitions and pivots, and this is what he starts to get to. In the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God, there's a sowing and there's a reaping. There's a, there, there's a mutual help in that we all sow things and we all reap things. He takes an agricultural expression in these next couple of verses and starts to explain that, hey, there is some sowing and there is some reaping that's going on. And in many ways, in many ways, we want to reap and not sow. We want to take and not give. What's fascinating, now this, let me just tell you a little bit about myself, and you can completely disagree. Email me at Ben at DCC Tally. I probably won't respond, but CC Sarah at DCC Tally, and she'll make sure I respond, okay? We understand this in every other avenue except the spiritual world, and I have no clue why. None of us would walk into Walmart and expect to take and not give. None of us would walk into school and expect to take, 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 and not give. In fact, well, some millennials, you think that you should and you not never pay for anything. But anyway, you know, you think take, no, no realm of life do we think take, 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 and not give. And I'm not talking about just expressly financial. 
in all of spirituality. We think that we don't need to give. We don't need to give of our time. We don't need to invest our relationships. We just think that there is going to be a reaping of which we have not sown. And in every area of life, you know, if all you do at your work is, is reap, 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 you just take, and I don't know what you take, but perhaps you've got a sweet little break room, and you take all the stuff, and you take all the office supplies, and you take everybody's time, but you don't actually give, you don't actually add value, you know what's going to happen? You're going to get fired. Now, we don't fire people, okay? Just breathe easy. But what's fascinating is in the spiritual realm, frankly, we don't realize that there is a reaping and there is a sowing. Furthermore, we don't realize we're all reaping something. See, some of us, we don't reap, we don't sow a lot into the spiritual world, we don't plant a lot, but we expect a harvest that's different than what we sow. So I'm going to explain what he's talking about in a second. Well, actually, I haven't even said what he said yet, but here's what he says. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he also reaps. For the one who sows to his own flesh, from the flesh reaps corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. He says, man, let me just, let me just explain this. For some of us, we sow dishonesty and disingenuineness and expect to reap good relationships. For some of us, we sow impurity outside of our marriage and expect to receive some type of intimacy inside of marriage. For some of us, we sow all kinds of evil, all kinds of bad, all kinds of negativity, and we expect to reap positivity. This kills me. Sometimes let me just, right, I'm going to vent, right? Not, not a lot of people here, so we're just going to you know, be honest for a Sunday. Hopefully we're honest every Sunday, but... Here's what drives me nuts. I mean, let me tell you one of the things that I sit down with people, and I just, you know, I'm, I'm too kind sometimes to say this you know, more straightforward, but I probably should. When someone says, you know, I'm just not growing that much. You know, I'm, I'm going to church, and I'm just not growing. That it doesn't happen as much as, you know, kind of sometimes in the beginning stages. But I'm just not growing as much. It's like, oh, well, tell me about that. Well, it's just, you know, this and that, and I don't really know. And no one wants to say, and I don't like the sermons, but, you know, that's kind of sometimes the implication. I said, well, let me, let me ask you this. Are you involved in a group? No, 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 don't go, don't go to a group. I was involved in a group, but I'm not currently in a group. Well, are you serving? Well, sometimes. I, I, you know, I serve, or no, I haven't really you know, served a bunch. Are you invested? Are you making a difference? Are you discipling? Are you pouring into? Well, no one's pouring into me. Well, that wasn't the question, but I appreciate your honesty. So what you're telling me is you're not reaping The reward of feeling like your relationship with Jesus is thriving in this environment, yet you're not sowing the seed for growth. I mean, come on, I don't care what church you go to, I don't care what place you go to, that doesn't make sense in any realm of life. Now, pause, let me just clarify a couple things too. This has nothing to do with God's satisfaction, this has nothing to do with your salvation, this has absolutely nothing to do with your favor and how God sees you and how God sees me, but this has everything to do with how we experience God, this has everything to do with how we grow, this has everything to do with the practical application that now I am free, now none of this is conditional for God being happy with me, Paul says, let me just tell you, if you continue to sow bad things and expect good things you expect to sow dishonesty you expect to sow discord and all of a sudden life relationally blows up let me just tell you you reap 
what you sow. And so don't be deceived. In fact, here's what I want you to do. He gives a little bit more practical application as he goes through this. He says, and then let us not grow weary. Let us not grow weary. We know we're going to reap and we're going to, we're going to sow. Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have, very important phrase, opportunity. In other words, as you have the ability, as you have the capacity, you aren't in charge of everyone's needs. You are in charge of selling everything in the world. You can't solve the world's problems. You can't solve our city problems. But you're responsible for what you're responsible for, as he talked about in verse 5. He says, and so as you realize this, I want you to realize you have an opportunity. You have an opportunity to sow. You have an opportunity to do good because as you have the opportunity, I want you to continue to do good. I don't want you to get tired of it because as you have the opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So I want you to continue to do good. I would, another almost aside from this sermon, but has to do with what he says. You know why most of us get tired of doing good? It's because we do it when we don't have the opportunity. You don't have the capacity. You're already stretched. You're already overcommitted. Some of us, we overcommit and still try to do more. Some of us, we don't do anything and don't ever commit. He says, well, come on, don't grow tired. As you have the opportunity, in due time, you will, let me just tell you, you might not see it now, it might not be the immediate, it might not be the immediate gratification the temporal gratification, but you will reap that. He continues. Verse 11. So see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand, which is funny for us because we're reading it all in the same font and the same size a couple thousand years later. But at this point, this point, this is what I love about how Paul says this. It's almost like Paul has, Paul has been um, telling this to ascribe to this point. This is, as everything builds and everything builds, Paul's like, application, 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 application. Now, let me tell you, in fact, scribe, man, give me the pen. I need to write this down myself, because I don't know if they're going to believe me or not, so I mean, I want them to know this part. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they might not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. In other words... He would talk to the Judaizers, the ones who were really going in and saying, hey, you should believe and behave, you should believe and behave, you should believe and behave. For them, the behavior was typified in circumcision and observance of the ceremonial law. That that was the culmination of all morality for them. He says, and so those who tell you again that God is pleased with how you behave, here is what I want you to know. They're just doing it for the fact to not get persecuted. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I love how Paul says, I love how Paul says, you know, I'm not going to have just any scribe write this. I'm going to write this myself because let me just tell you my perspective as a Christian. I have been crucified to the world 
the cares of the world, the concerns of the world, the cares of me first, the cares of, 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 of sensuality, the, the cares of all kinds of physical, just I need, I see, I want, the cares of selfishness, the cares of acquisition, the cares of doing all this. It has been crucified to me, and I have been crucified to it. That no longer defines me. That no longer is my drive. That no longer is my motivation. He says, the only thing. He says, bar, bar fear from me. To boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love how he front loads that verse. He says, man, the only thing I boast in is the cross of Jesus. Let me tell you just kind of a a personal realization that I've had, gosh, within the last month and a half or so. Oftentimes when we view Paul, really when we view Christianity in general, we view Christianity through a sense of, frankly, passivism. We view Christianity through a sense of Paul was just content. You know, Philippians, you know, I found the secret of contentment that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That it's just kind of like as life comes, then I will be content with all things. We get the feeling that Paul, you know, is kind of saying, hey, worldliness doesn't matter. I'm just kind of bland to it. No, no, here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, man, I don't have a sense of passivism. I have a sense of obsession that drives all of this. I have a sense that the only thing that matters to me is the cross. The only thing that matters to me is Jesus. The only thing that as I look at the entire world, as I look at the fleeting fulfillment when I see the world, the only thing that I boast in, that I put hope in, that I put obsession into is the cross of Jesus Christ. And Paul was a man, not of passivism, but he was a man of active obsession of Jesus. You see, as we read through that other stuff, there's oftentimes inside of us some type of a feeling that says, well, I don't know if I can carry other people's burdens. Well, I don't know if I can sow that much good stuff. Well, I don't know if I can give that much. Well, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can. Paul said, no, 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 I don't care about that. I am obsessed with knowing Jesus. I am obsessed with boasting in him. I am obsessed with only care about him. I mean, it's as if the entire world has been crucified to me, and I have been crucified to the entire world, and the only thing, the single piece of my adoration and obsession is the cross. It's Jesus. And so how can I, with with moral authority, say all that? Paul says, that's the only thing I care about. You go around the world and you, you well, we all do this. Caring about everybody, caring about everything. Sometimes we don't help people because we're too concerned with ourselves, and sometimes we help too many people because of the fact that we feel like we've got to do everything because we are the Savior. Sometimes we you know, expect to sow bad things and get good things. You know why? Because we're selfish. Paul says, come on, I don't care about any of that my obsession is with Jesus my obsession is with the cross all these other things it's like they've been crucified to me that I've been crucified to them and as for all who walk by this rule or he says no, no, sorry verse 15 huge verse for neither he says let me just reiterate neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. But what counts is a new creation. In other words, 
when you get this, when you understand this, when you understand this justification by faith, when you understand that we are now free, innocent because of faith, it wells up inside of you an obsession to love God back, not just because you decide to be obsessed with something, but because you experience the love of God in your life. And it, in your heart, creates a new creation. He says something. You're going to talk about this or that, or can I do this or that, or should I go here or there, or should I hang out with them or not, or should I you know, do whatever and, or not whatever. He's, come on, come on. None of that matters. Here's what matters, that the gospel has taken root in your life, it has taken root in your heart, that you don't simply have an affiliation with the God, frankly, a southern form of Christianity where we go to church, we pray, we got a Bible on our nightstand, we read it when we really can't sleep because the Bible always puts us to sleep, right? And then we decide, okay, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to be in the choir, I'm going to go to the picnic thing after lunch, you know. That's our version of Christianity. Paul says, come on, don't fool yourself, don't deceive yourself to think that that's what matters. What matters, what matters is that the gospel has taken root, that you have placed your faith, you have placed your hope, you have placed your trust in your inability of Jesus' subsequent substitution because of our inability for knowing that. In fact, he planned it the entire time. He died on the cross, took my sins, resurrected, overcame the grave, and overcame everything. And now I am singularly obsessed with that. And you are a new creation. That's all that matters. That's all I care about. None of that stuff means anything. And everybody, verse 16, who walk by this rule, he said, peace and mercy be on them. Be upon the Israel of God. Says this Israel. He says, now, now this, this, this was, this is difficult because this was so offensive to so many people when he said that. When he called them Israel, Because they thought the people of Israel were the people of the lineage of Abraham. Paul says, no. When you get that, you are the people of God. So from now on, (laughs) let no one cause me trouble. Otherwise, says, I mean, I'm kind of over this. I'm tired of it. He's going to have to deal with it a bunch later. But he says, you know, I'm kind of dealing with it. I'm tired of it. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Now, in the um, church world, people take that to some really weird extremes, to be honest. We start thinking he all of a sudden did this or (laughs) did that, and it just gets real wonky real quick. But here's what he's saying. I am so obsessed with this. This is what I care about. Once you get this, this is what everything revolves around. Morality, man, just glorifying God. Glorifying God by loving people, glorifying God by being a new creation, glorifying God by living my entire life for him. And everything else, let me just tell you, I have lived it, and here's what I want you to know. I bear the marks marks on my body of obsession with the cross. It's cost me a lot, doesn't matter. I've been crucified to it. Paul had been shipwrecked. Paul had been beaten. Paul had been whipped. Paul had been stoned, and not like in like a modern, you know, legalization type of way. But, you know, Paul, everything that could happen happened just about to Paul. I mean, with an inch of his life multiple times, Paul would go to a city, and he would be so loved by some, and he would be so hated by others. He'd be there for two weeks, and they'd say, Paul, you got to, man, we love you, but you got to get out. And so they'd lower him outside of the wall in this little, like, you know, buggy type thing. So, like, dude, things are getting real here, and we need you to continue to go. Paul finishes in verse 18. 
He says, in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, be with your spirit. I love how he ends this. I mean, such extraordinary challenge. And he says, let me, just, let me just not forget this. Grace. Grace. May the grace of Jesus be with you. Be with your spirit, brothers. In other words, and as you go, I want you to know that there's grace. Because you will inevitably fall short. But that never defined your standing with God. That when you realize that you are selfish, hey, there's grace for that. When you realize that you are sinful, there's grace for that. When you realize all those things are grace. Now, don't forget that you're going to sow whatever you reap. But there's still grace. That doesn't define your relationship with God. Let me just tell you what I hope. Ending this whole thing, I was kind of thinking, gosh, the, the, the summation of, of Galatians. I hope, I hope, I hope that for every single one of us, our understanding of God is fundamentally wrapped around justification. That we are justified. We are made right with God simply through our faith. Simply through belief. And I hope that that bears inside of us the roots of gospel transformation that leads to obsession, that nothing else matters. That in our freedom, the natural result of our freedom is not to, in every way, shape, and form, all of a sudden make it about ourselves again, but the form of our freedom is we are so overwhelmed by the love of God, we are so overwhelmed by the love of Jesus displayed on the cross, we are so consumed and obsessed by the gospel that it's not even a question of our personal holiness. It's not even a question of transparency. It's not even a question of vulnerability. It's not even a question of generosity. It's not even a question of bearing another, one of those burdens. And I wouldn't dare ditch my own responsibility. I mean, who would do that in trying to live a life worthy of the gospel? That the only thing that matters to me is how Jesus has made a new creation in me. And then to go back to verse 4, and then we will boast in that, that each of us will stand before individually an almighty God and boast, not in ourselves, but what God did in and through us as we became obsessed with him doing what only he can do, which is to make us right with him, to rectify, to in every way reconcile us to himself and to help spread that to a lost and a hurting and a broken world. And I feel and I hope and I pray that you have so much freedom to pursue God in a way that you never have before, that you have a holiness like you've never seen before, that you have a holiness like your family's never seen before, that your workplace has never seen before, you have a passion for Jesus that your friends have never seen before, you have a deep abiding obsession with a God who sowed so much, who sowed so much, and it's the natural response and reaction for us to freely pursue him. So, don't know where you are, don't know who you are in life, but here's my hope. If you're a Christian, you pursue Jesus. You live in the recognition daily of your good standing with him and it frees you to pursue him. 
And I hope if you're in here studying faith, interested in faith, not really sure where you stand with God, I hope two things for you, honestly. I hope, number one, you meet a Christian who lives like that, and it changes your perspective. Because perhaps you had some Christians who, so, who lived in a way that was so legalistic that it was just detrimental to your faith. I hope you meet a Christian who has the freedom of pursuing God, who sows and reaps and sows and reaps and sows and reaps, and they have freedom, and they pursue God, and they're holy. Not because they have to be, not because they can feel confined, but because they, they actually want to. I hope that changes the way that you view God. And I hope my ultimate goal and desire is that you would come to place your trust in your inability. You would place your trust in Jesus' sufficiency and sacrifice on the cross. That you can have a reconciled relationship with God. A a heavenly father who so loved you he gave his son to die for you. And you can be in intimate, personal relationship with him. Now and forever. Regardless of what you've done. Regardless of who you are. Regardless of your past. That you can experience not simply forgiveness. But freedom. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we celebrate this Christmas season. The fact that you, a loving God, saw our enslavement to the law, saw our enslavement to sin. God, that you came and died for us so that we would be free, free from the law, free from the expectation of other people, free from the expectation of religious folk, we would be free, free to pursue you as we have placed our faith, our hope, and our trust in your salvific work on the cross, Jesus. We are free. And we thank you that you came in such a way that you came and you served and you loved. Jesus, I pray for every man, woman in this room, who believes in you, freedom, freedom, obsession with you and you alone as that takes root in our life, in our lives. And I pray for everyone in this room struggling with faith, wrestling with the thoughts of you. God, they would place their trust their hope and their belief in you, Jesus, who came down, lived, and died for us to forever set the record clean that no matter what we had done, no matter where we had been, no matter how small or big our mountain of sin had become, you died to wipe the entire thing that we are not simply forgiven, but we are innocent and we are free. We are so thankful for that. I pray that they would come to know you, Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.